welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. So in 1 Timothy chapter 5, I hope to conclude our look at the church's responsibilities to widows this morning. First we saw that we are the family of God. The local church is a representation of the household of God. Second, we saw in 1 Timothy 5 that God cares deeply for widows. Women bereft of their protector or provider have historically been amongst the most vulnerable in society. And God calls on the family of God to honor them, to consider them worthy of their personal sacrifice. But unfortunately, some in the some in the Ephesian church, which is the church that Timothy was at, that he was serving at, and honestly, in other churches since, some have taken advantage of the church's compassion. And this prompts Paul to write to Timothy about supporting widows who are truly widows. We saw that they must be alone, meaning that they have no family to provide for them, or their unbelieving family members have abandoned them. Also, to be truly a widow, she must be a genuine believer who turns to God in her distress. Not a woman who sees the death of her husband as a liberating experience which frees her to live a carnal lifestyle. We talked about the new Roman women of that day who saw this as a time to just really live it up because they're free now. Keeping these two things in mind the practical application we came to for our church is that our church will rescue from destitution widows who are truly alone and faithful members of our church. Faithful because she must be someone who clings to God and his family during distress. And a member of our church Because only members of our church have committed themselves to this family and said, I want to belong. Membership in a local church is not like joining the bowling club in Heather Park with dues, discounted t-shirts, and a birthday card once a year. Membership in a local church is publicly saying that you want to join a family, a local Christian family. You are committing to be present, to give financially, to serve, and to live in unity with this family of believers. And then the rest of this family, this is a beautiful thing, the rest of this family welcomes you and commits to do the same for the glory of God and for your good. As a local church, we are clearly responsible first and foremost to provide for those who are joined to our local Christian family. Just as a husband is responsible first and foremost to look to the needs of those living under his roof. This is how we as a church put on public display the beauty of being the family of God. We together with one voice refuse to stand by idly as one of our sisters Or a mother in Christ is in danger of going hungry or without shelter. Instead, we honor widows who are truly widows by personally sacrificing for their well-being. 
This is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, the one who is wi- was willing to sacrifice His only Son in, to, in order to save us from our spiritual destitution. It is because we have been given everything through Christ Jesus our Lord that we are able and willing to sacrifice our time, our effort, and even our money for the sake of those who are the family of God. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, what we've studied previously, Paul has outlined supporting widows generally, but in verses 9 through 16, he's going to get more specific about how the church should go about supporting widows who are in different phases of life. This in mind, let's read 1 Timothy 5, verses 9 through 16 together. Paul says to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, For in their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. Verse 16 says, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it it may care for those who are truly widows. Before we jump into this passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer and just ask Him for His blessing. That the Spirit of God would reveal the truth to us. That He would impact us with the truth. And that he, might, he would help us as we seek to shine the of the light on this passage that might be a little more difficult to understand. Let's, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your church. I thank you for the image that you give us of a church being a family, the household of God. I pray that here at Agape, that we would continue from one degree of looking and sounding like a family to another. That we would continue to grow in this. That we wouldn't become idle in our efforts to serve one another. I pray that you would bless us as we look at your word. Please, Lord, may your spirit guide us as we study it together. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul begins in verse 9 with an interesting phrase. He says, let a widow be enrolled. It seems clear to me that Paul is continuing his thought from verses 1 through 8 and that the widows he now speaks of are those widows who are completely alone and genuine believers. But he changes direction slightly by using the word enrolled, also translated added to the number or added to the list. The Greek word literally means to lay down or write down the name, similar to how a soldier would be enlisted into service. When a soldier enlists, he guarantees physical provision, he is guaranteed physical provision 
for his service to the cause. This is most likely the way this word is being used in verse 9. Paul is speaking of a specific group of destitute Christian widows who are all alone. And there are two things to keep in mind that the context implies as we study this passage together. The context implies that the early church fully committed to provide for these widows. And these widows in return fully committed the remaining time and energy in service to the local church. After looking at all the different possible explanations for this passage, I believe this is the best explanation of what Paul is going to discuss in verses 9 through 16. Try to keep this in mind. To be enrolled as a widow was to be fully and permanently taken under the protective wing of the local church, which then freed the, the enrolled widow to fully and permanently serve the local church, as if she had taken on the local church as her own household physically. In plain English, the early church said, we will protect and provide for you till the very end. Serve the family of God as God gives you ability. And then the widow said, in return, I will serve God's household as if it were my very own until the very end. I realize this situation is somewhat strange to us. I assume that most of us have never been a part of a church where there was a special group of serving widows which the church fully committed to support until their dying day. But the following instructions inform us of, of vital principles that we must implement in our church as physical needs become apparent. God's instructions inform our hearts and guide our steps. With this in mind, let's look at the qualifications for being permanently enrolled as a serving widow. He says in verse 9, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. Let's stop here for a moment because I believe these are the three overarching qualifications. The remainder of the list expounds on having a good reputation. So these are the three overarching categories. First, Paul says that a widow must be 60 or older. In the first century, 60 years old was considered a ripe old age. Without proper nutrition, health standards, and medical intervention, death um, in younger years was far more common than it is today. Also, they didn't have hip replacements, knee operations, or coronary artery bypass surgery. That word. And simple, infection, or simple infections or viruses suffered in younger years often left permanent damage that they carried with them into later life and ended their life prematurely. So once a person reached the age of 60, life had typically taken its toll and a person's health was in rapid decline. Once a person reached the age of 60, it was a very, respectable, a very respectable time for them to step away from strenuous labor and spend the remaining years enjoying grandchildren and instructing the young on how to live. With this historical concept, we, context, we see the key principle that for a widow to be enrolled into permanent support from the church, she must be well beyond the age of having children typically past the age of getting remarried 
and approaching a phase in her life when her ability to work physically is rapidly in decline. This may or may not happen at 60 years old today due to healthcare improvements. I'm not saying this is the case for those 60 and above. But the key principle can still guide us as a church into wisdom and who it is that we are responsible to provide for. Paul next says that a widow must have been the wife of one husband, or literally a one-man woman. We saw the mirror image of this in chapter 3 when going through the qualifications for men who were qualified to lead and teach the church. There we discuss this qualification as pointing to the man's passion and devotion. The point is no different here. Did this woman display a consistent testimony of being passionately devoted to one man, her husband, in contrast to a woman who had split or inconsistent passions or devotions? It would be an error to claim that this phrase automatically disqualifies every woman who has been remarried. Instead, we should ask the question, has this woman, through her life, held high the sanctity of the one flesh nature of the marriage relationship between one man and one woman? This principle keeps the church from permanently supporting an older widow and giving her liberty and freedom to serve the church if all she's going to do with that freedom and support is tear down one of the key building blocks of every godly home. Can you imagine supporting that kind of widow? An older woman that teaches the younger women in the church that life got so much better after she divorced her bum of a husband and headed out on her own. God calls us to be covenant-keeping people. And we should not support anyone who pushes another message. Finally, to be enrolled, a widow must have a reputation for good works. This literally means that others would publicly testify that her deeds matched her profession of faith. She was busy doing the things, not that the world burdened her conscience with, but with the things that God calls honorable and good. The rest of verse 10 describes a few overarching works or deeds that every godly woman rejoices in. I say godly women rejoice in these things, not because these deeds are always easy, or because she always has the energy for them, or because she just happens to have an extroverted personality. Oftentimes the deeds we are about to read are difficult, costly, and humbling. But a godly woman does these things because she has set her heart and mind on the God who called her from the slave block of sin and washed her in the cleansing river of his blood and adopted her as his daughter and heir of eternity. A godly woman gazes back on what Jesus has done for her on the cross. She recognizes what the Spirit of God is doing for her right now, and she sets her hope on the Father who has promised that He will receive her because she is in Christ, His Son. 
when we taste and see the beauty of our redeeming God, it fills our heart with love for Him and stirs genuine believers into action. It is love for our great God that must drive our actions. And in verse 10, we see five good works or deeds that a godly woman will dedicate herself to for the love of her Savior. First, it says she brings up children. This typically means that a woman bears children, loves them, cares for their needs, and trains them to love God and others. But there are other possibilities. Some godly women never have children of their own, but they rejoice in every opportunity they have to love children to Jesus, their Savior. The children in your life may be nieces and nephews, a friend's child, the little children back there in the crush in Sunday school, or the children at a local orphanage. But the point is that godly women rejoice to serve their Savior by loving children to Him. The second work listed is that a godly woman is known for showing hospitality. In the first century, it was extremely dangerous to travel, and there were few safe places for a Christian to stay while they were on the road. But Christians were known for hosting complete strangers in their home for a short time simply because they bore the name. They claimed the name of Christ followers. We don't usually have the same issue in our day, but the principle remains. Are you willing to be inconvenienced, even in your own home, for the sake of the name, for the sake of Christ? Are you willing to invite Christians into your home for maybe a warm meal, a Bible study, to weep or rejoice with them for a baking party with a younger woman if you're an older Tani that just wants to have impact in a younger lady's life? Or simply so that a single person can enjoy an evening with a family and get to feel that warmth? Are you welcoming Christians into the warmth of your home? Or are you known for keeping everyone at a healthy distance. Hospitality is the act of welcoming people into the warmth of your own home for the sake of the name. The third good work that a godly woman is known for is that she has washed the feet of the saints. This is closely tied to hospitality because in the first century, whenever a guest entered your home, their feet needed to needed to be washed from all the dust, grime, mud, and animal droppings that had collected in their sandals and between their toes. Now you could let them wash their own feet if they were subordinate to you. That would be acceptable. Or you could have a servant wash their feet if you were wealthy. That would definitely keep your pride intact. Or you could honor them. You could honor your guest as much greater than yourself by washing their feet yourself. Think on Jesus' words after he went around the room and washed his disciples' feet. 
shortly after, they were all just arguing about who was going to be the greatest among them, or who was the greatest among them. John, in John 13, verse 12, we read this. Jesus says to his disciples, right after he's gotten up off the floor, he's put his, his outer garment back on, and he looks, sits down, and he looks at them, and he says, Do you understand what I have done to you? I'm assuming the answer is no in all of their minds. Now we have no idea what you just did. Verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. He's saying, I am your teacher and Lord. Verse 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Feet washing was just as humbling an experience in Jesus' day as it would be today. Do not think that it was easier for the twelve disciples, these twelve proud men, to wash one another's feet. It was not easier than it would be for us today. Jesus truly is calling, calling his followers to humble themselves to the point of becoming a servant. Rejoicing to serve their Christian brothers and sisters even in the most menial tasks, if necessary. All for the sake of His name. Now I'm not suggesting that for us to be biblical, we all need to line up and wash one another's feet as we come in every single Sunday. But if someone needed their feet washed, are we in our hearts willing to? That's the question. It may not be feet washing, it might be caring for an elderly person who is struggling to care for themselves. The fourth good work that a godly woman is known for is that she has cared for the afflicted. It is interesting to note that a requirement for a widow to be enrolled into permanent aid and service is that the widow being evaluated has a consistent testimony of giving aid to others who were destitute. She is known for doing the very thing in her past that she's now asking for. Imagine with me a hypothetical lady in our congregation who is very different. So this is hypothetical. There is no one in mind here. This hypothetical lady in our congregation is a member and is present is typically present at our Sunday assembly. But then she disappears as soon as the service is over. She doesn't serve the church unless backed into a corner by someone. She doesn't know the other members. And she isn't willing to care for anyone except for those few people inside her intimate family bubble. She doesn't pray for the church family. How can she? She doesn't know them. And even if she has met a few and knows a couple names, they just don't seem to ever come to mind in reality, to her, the local church is a necessary Christian inconvenience. 
Imagine the bewilderment of the local pastors if her life starts getting rough and she, bec- and she becomes the one who is now afflicted or in distress. And she all of a sudden runs to the pastors and to the church and says, I'm your sister and your mother. Rescue me from my creditors. Out of compassion for a weaker family member, our church may choose to extend mercy or extend emergency generosity. But this is not a woman that we should fully support and ask to spend her days in service to our church. She would love the safety net, but not our church. In reality, the greatest mercy our church should pour out on this erring sister is the biblical steps of restoration which is also called church discipline, before her need ever arose. Monthly support would only enable her to to comfortably continue forsaking the gathering, forsaking the family. It's not just being here, it's loving one another and serving one another. In contrast, a godly woman comes to the aid of the afflicted, Because she loves the Christ who bent his back and bore the flogging she deserves. The Christ who carried her cross to the hill called Golgotha. The Christ who as a human shield stepped in front of her and bore the scorching wrath of God that would have fell on her. This is also why a godly woman will even exceed these categories and have a testimony of devoting herself to every good work, as Paul says. This doesn't mean that she does everything, but instead that she rejoices in doing the deeds that glorify and please her redeeming God as she is able. These first two verses generally describe an older, godly woman. But so that none of the younger women in our congregation be discouraged by this list of things that may seem too difficult. And, and maybe as you're sitting here, just it sounds like I'm just piling on more responsibilities in a, in a life that's already somewhat out of your control. But so that you're not discouraged, look closely at this list with me again. Young women who love God should be passionately devoted to their husband. Love children to Jesus. Open her heart and home to Christians and reflect the compassion of Christ. That's what he has just listed in other words. Notice how these things center around the love of a woman in her own home. Every single one of these things can be filled to a a great degree by nurturing a loving, godly home. And then welcoming others into that Christian warmth of your home. This is pleasing in the sight of God. You don't have to hand out a thousand tracts each week. You don't have to be a famous Christian author or speaker. You don't even have to be a missionary to China. And you certainly do not have to guilt trip yourself with additional secular expectations. (laughs) of an impressive career, wealth, fame, or fashion. 
So many Christian women have rejected what God calls the main thing and pleasing in His sight in pursuit of these other trivial things. Power, fame, or an Instagram following. Sisters, please hear me. Not because I am anyone, but because God has breathed out His Word in this love letter to His people, and he commissioned me to proclaim these words to you. When someone asks you what you do, never, never be ashamed to honestly say, I am a wife, a mother, and a servant of the church. Never be ashamed. Women who rejoice in these things for the sake of Christ's name, are worthy of great honor in this life and the next. But if God withholds a husband or children from you, or if He takes these things away from you after you've had them, then seek out the unique service that He has for you. A young woman without husband, children, or a home of her own to lovingly nurture was never intended to be the norm. But as Paul states in 1 Corinthians 7, there have been certain times when times of violent persecution when it is better to remain single for a time. Or certain women who God gifts, this is a gift from God, with little to no desire for sexual intimacy with a husband so that they can fully serve the church with their extra time and energy. Or times when God calls women to love Him and glorify Him through the trial of singleness or childlessness. These roles are not lesser roles, but they are not the norm either. And a Christian young woman who finds herself in one of these situations should carefully consider how God would have her invest her additional time and energy. God has not sidelined you or abandoned you. He is preparing you for His unique service. I have spent most of our time discussing the godly woman who was stirred to action throughout her Christian life because of the love of the name, the name of Jesus, her Redeemer. This love for her Redeemer overflows into love for her own husband, children, church, and community. The focus of her action is to nurture her own home and then welcome others into that godly warmth. This picture of a godly woman will help us understand verses 11 through 14, which we'll move through quickly for the sake of time. First he says in verses 11 through 13, but refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. Keep in mind our definition of enroll. The woman is all alone. She is a genuine believer. She is requesting permanent and full support from the church in exchange for permanent and full service 
to the church on her part. But Paul says that it would be a mistake to enroll a younger widow into this support and service. Why? Why is this a problem? By the way Paul is speaking, it sounds like he has been dealing with the very problems he is listing. This doesn't sound like a hypothetical situation. And in verse 14 he affirms that some women have already strayed after Satan in these areas. Paul is looking at what is happening in the churches in the first century and is giving Timothy a warning about misplaced compassion. Imagine this scenario. A 25-year-old Christian woman is married to a fisherman in Ephesus. But he becomes ill and dies, leaving her penniless without father, mother, or family to support her. She comes to her church in her grief and says, My husband is dead and I am destitute. I could never love another man. Enroll me into the widows of the church and I will commit the rest of my life to prayer, supplications, and service. Timothy and the other elders naturally are broken in their hearts for their sister who is bereft. This is a good response. But then they agree to her request and and they enroll her into the church, into the widows of the church, though the church is already struggling under their financial obligations. The young widow continues in the situation for five years But as time passes, her brokenness mends. She finds herself young, attractive, and with more time and energy on her hands than the church really needs. And she begins to desire a husband, children, and a home of her own. But five years ago, she committed to remain a widow and dedicate her life to prayer and service. What is she supposed to do with the conflict between her desire and her commitment? Everyone in her Christian community knows her as one of the enrolled widows in the church, so she is completely off-limits to any of the Christian men she knows. So what is she supposed to do? Paul testifies in verse 11 of what he is seeing in the churches. Young Christian women were being drawn away from Christ. A rash commitment in their past was causing them to grow bitter towards Christ now. And they wanted out. We are not given the specifics of how these women were running out on their faith. But verse 12 tells us that their actions were condemned or judged sinful by God because they were abandoning their former faith. Christ was in the background as they pursued something else. This was the first problem Paul was seeing. But the second problem is even more applicable to our church today. Verse 13 speaks of a frustrated widow with way too much time and energy on her hands. 25-year-old men and women need good work to do. They need to exhaust the abundant amounts of energy that God has given them. You might be 25 or 30 and you might feel like you have no energy and you're tired, but it's probably because you have good work to do. If you leave your energy all pent up and you do not use it for profitable service to your home, church, community, then that energy and time will be used for things that destroy the body and soul. 
endless time staring at your phone, body and soul destroy. Dedicating your life to shopping, watch your soul decay to dust. Invest your time and energy getting into other people's business, gossiping and criticizing other Christians while never lifting a muscle to actually help them? Watch your church crumble from the inside out. At the very beginning of verse 13, Paul says these widows learn to be idlers. This implies that someone encouraged their education in this direction, or at least did not stop them from going down this path. In reality, the church was responsible for a 25-year-old widow's idleness if they paid all her expenses but gave her no meaningful work to do. They tempted her to idleness. For this reason, Paul says in verses 14 and 15, So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. Paul is pointing back to the godly woman of verses 9 and 10 as an example to the young. The church is not to facilitate idleness, but instead the church must rejoice with women in the way God made them. Holding high the honor of marriage, family, rearing of children, and nurturing of, the, of a home. Encouraging our sisters in the honor that God has bestowed on them by gifting them and, and appointing them as the managers of a home. In conclusion, Paul wraps up these 16 verses on widows that we spent three weeks studying. He, he wraps it up with a final call for family members to show compassion. He says in verse 16, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows, those who are truly in need. We saw last week how men as heads of households were responsible to provide. We saw that in verse 8. But here Paul calls on the women in the church, believing women, to ensure that they care for any widows in their family. Again, Paul is pointing back to the, God, to the godly woman in verse 10. In that verse it says, She has cared for the afflicted. She helped them, gave them aid, assisted them, loved them in their hour of need. Caring for widows is not just for house, heads of households. In conclusion, Paul says, Christian men, women, adult children and grandchildren, brothers and sisters, cousins, aunts and uncles, all should ensure that they are displaying the compassion of God by looking to the needs of their own family members. It's really what we've seen throughout these verses is that the family should look to displaying the love of God to their own family. This protects the local church from becoming a retirement program and distracted from its purpose, as we saw earlier in 1 Timothy, of being the pillar and buttress of the truth. This, is, this also ensures that widows who are truly widows are able to get the care and provision they need, even if it's through a church with a very limited budget. 
in our afterward discussion time, we'll briefly look at what our church is currently doing for widows and how we might respond to situations in the future. But for now, with all these different ideas about widows that we've looked at for three weeks, please be comforted by this. Be comforted in the knowledge that our church will continue to pour out compassion on our members who are financially struggling. This is one of the ways your tithes and offerings glorify and honor the name of Christ. Also be comforted to know that we will, we will show compassion to widows in our church, whether they're young or old. Paul is correcting some specific problems But he is not discouraging the family of God from rescuing a 25-year-old widow from destitution and then putting them back on their feet. That would be a temporary and immediate emergency situation that we would seek to pour out compassion on. We as a church will endeavor to display the heart of God for every widow in our congregation for the sake of His name. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, how it guides us, it corrects us when we even sometimes have misplaced compassion and when our compassion might be the cause of someone stumbling into sin. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be wise, that we would know your word and that we would glean the riches that you have placed in us. Lord, I pray that on everyone's heart these, these truths would not sit as just rules and lists of things that they now have to add to their already burdened heart. But instead that they would see, that we all would see these things and these good works that you have called us to in Christ. That we would see these things as the outpouring of an established and growing love for our great God. It's not busy work. It is the response of a heart that loves God. Would you implant that in our hearts today? May we go out of here rejoicing today. In Jesus' name, amen.